be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew. Thanks for joining us and for taking this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be beginning The Cricket on the Hearth by Charles Dickens. Chapter 1. Chirp the First. Part 1. In this part, we hear of the competition between the cricket and the kettle. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy. And your breath soften. As we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 1 Chirp the First The kettle began it. Don't tell me what Mrs. Peerybingle said. I know better. Mrs. Peerybingle may leave it on record to the end of time that she couldn't say which of them began it. But I say the kettle did. I ought to know, I hope. The kettle began it, five full minutes by the little waxy-faced Dutch clock in the corner, before the cricket uttered a chirp. As if the clock hadn't finished striking, and the convulsive little haymaker at the top of it, jerking away right and left, with a scythe in front of a Moorish palace, hadn't mowed down half an acre of imaginary grass before the cricket joined in at all. Why, I'm not naturally positive. Everyone knows that. I wouldn't set my own opinion against the opinion of Mrs. Peerybingle, unless I were quite sure. I wouldn't set my own opinion against the opinion of Mrs. Peerybingle, unless I were quite sure, on any account whatever. Nothing should induce me. But this is a question of fact, and the fact is, the kettle began it, 
at least five minutes before the cricket gave any sign of being in existence. Contradict me, and I'll say ten. Let me narrate exactly how it happened. I should have proceeded to do so in my very first word, but for this plain consideration. If I am to tell a story, I must begin it at the beginning. And how is it possible to begin at the beginning without beginning at the kettle? It appeared as if there were a sort of match or trial of skill, you must understand, between the kettle and the cricket. And this is what led to it and how it came about. Mrs. Peerybingle, going out into the raw twilight and clicking over the wet stones in a pair of patterns that worked innumerable rough impressions of the first proposition in Euclid all about the yard. Mrs. Peerybingle filled the kettle at the water butt. Presently returning, less the patterns, and a good deal less, for they were tall, and Mrs. Peerybingle was but short. She set the kettle on the fire. In doing which, she lost her temper, or mislaid it for an instant, for the water being uncomfortably cold, and in that slippy, slushy, sleety sort of state, wherein it seems to penetrate through every kind of substance, pattern rings included, had laid hold of Mrs. Peerybingle's toes and even splashed her legs. And when we rather plume ourselves, with reason to, upon our legs, and keep ourselves particularly neat in point of stockings, we find this, for the moment, hard to bear. Besides, the kettle was aggravating and obstinate. It wouldn't allow itself to be adjusted on the top bar. It wouldn't allow itself to be adjusted on the top bar. It wouldn't hear of accommodating itself kindly to the knobs of coal. It would lean forward with a drunken air and dribble, a very idiotic kettle, on the hearth. It was quarrelsome and hissed and spluttered morosely at the fire. To sum up all, the lid, resisting Mrs. Peerybingle's fingers, first of all turned topsy-turvy, and then, with an ingenious pertinacity, deserving of a better cause, dived sideways in, down to the very bottom of the kettle. The hull of the Royal George has never made half the monstrous resistance to coming out of the water, which the lid of that kettle employed against Mrs. Peerybingle before she got it up again. It looked sullen and pig-headed enough 
even then, carrying its handle with an air of defiance and cocking its spout pertly and mockingly at Mrs. Peary Bingle, as if it said, I won't boil, nothing shall induce me. But Mrs. Peary Bingle, with restored good humour, dusted her chubby little hands against each other and sat down before the kettle, laughing. Meantime, the jolly blaze uprose and fell, flashing and gleaming on the little haymaker at the top of the Dutch clock, until one might have thought he stood stock still before the Moorish palace, and nothing was in motion but the flame. He was on the move, however, and had his spasms, two to the second, all right and regular. But his sufferings when the clock was going to strike were frightful to behold, and when a cuckoo looked out of a trap door in the palace and gave note six times, it shook him each time like a spectral voice, or like something wiry plucking at his legs. It was not until a violent commotion and a whirring noise among the weights and ropes below him had quite subsided that this terrified haymaker became himself again. Nor was he startled without reason, for these rattling, bony skeletons of clocks are very disconcerting in their operation and I wonder very much how any set of men, but most of all how Dutchmen, can have a liking to invent them. There is a popular belief that Dutchmen love broad cases and much clothing for their own lower selves, and they might know better than to leave their clocks so very lank and unprotected, surely. Now it was, you observe, that the kettle began to spend the evening. Now it was that the kettle, growing mellow and musical, began to have irrepressible gurglings in its throat and to indulge in short vocal snorts, which it checked in the bud as if it hadn't quite made up its mind yet to be good company. Now it was that after two or three such vain attempts to stifle its convivial sentiments, it threw off all moroseness, all reserve, and burst into a stream of song so cosy and hilarious as never maudlin nightingale yet formed the least idea of. So plain, too. Bless you, you might have understood it like a book, better than some books you and I could name perhaps. With its warm breath gushing forth in a light cloud, which merrily and gracefully ascended a few feet, then hung about the chimney corner 
as its own domestic heaven. It trolled its song with that strong energy of cheerfulness that its iron body hummed and stirred upon the fire, and the lid itself, the recently rebellious lid, such is the influence of a bright example, performed a sort of jig and clattered like an ignorant young symbol that had never known the use of its own twin brother. That this song of the kettles was a song of invitation and welcome to somebody out of doors, to somebody at that moment coming on towards the snug, small home and the crisp fire. There is no doubt whatever. Mrs. Peerybingle knew it perfectly as she sat musing before the hearth. It's a dark night, sang the kettle, and the rotten leaves are lying by the way, and, above, all is mist and darkness, and, below, all is mire and clay, and there's only one relief in all the sad and murky air, and I don't know that it is one for it's nothing but a glare of deep and angry crimson where the sun and wind together set a brand upon the clouds for being guilty of such weather and the widest open country is a long, dull streak of black and there's hoar-frost on the finger-post and thaw upon the track and the ice, it isn't water, and the water isn't free, and you couldn't say that anything is what it ought to be. But he's coming, coming, coming. And here, if you like, the cricket did chime in, with a chirrup, chirrup, chirrup of such magnitude, by way of chorus, with a voice so astoundingly disproportionate to its size, as compared with the kettle. Size, you couldn't see it, that if it had then and there burst itself like an overcharged gun, if it had fallen a victim on the spot and chirruped its little body, into fifty pieces. It would have seemed a natural and inevitable consequence for which it had expressly laboured. The kettle had had the last of its solo performance. It persevered with undiminished ardour, but the cricket took first fiddle and kept it. Good heaven! How it chirped. Its shrill, sharp, piercing voice resounded through the house and seemed to twinkle in the outer darkness like a star. 
There was an indescribable little trill and tremble in it, at its loudest, which suggested it being carried off its legs and made to leap again by its own intense enthusiasm. Yet they went very well together, the cricket and the kettle. The burden of the song was still the same, and louder, louder, louder still they sang in their emulation. The fair little listener, for fair she was, and young, though something of what is called the dumpling shape, but I don't myself object to that, lighted a candle, glanced at the haymaker on the top of the clock, who was getting a pretty average crop of minutes, and looked out of the window, where she saw nothing, owing to the darkness, but her own face imaged in the glass. And my opinion is, and so would yours have been, that she might have looked a long way and seen nothing half so agreeable. When she came back and sat down in her former seat, the cricket and the kettle were still keeping it up with a perfect fury of competition. The kettle's weak side clearly being that he didn't know when he was beat. There was all the excitement of a race about it. Chirp, 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 cricket a mile ahead. Hum, 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 kettle making play in the distance, like a great top. Chirp, 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 cricket round the corner. Hum, hum, hum. Kettle sticking to him in his own way. No idea of giving in. Chirp, chirp, chirp. Cricket fresher than ever. Hum, hum, hum. Kettle slow and steady. Chirp, chirp, chirp. Cricket going in to finish him. Hum, hum, hum. Kettle not to be finished. Until at last they got so jumbled together in the hurry-scurry, helter-skelter of the match that whether the kettle chirped and the cricket hummed or the cricket chirped and the kettle hummed or they both chirped and both hummed, it would have taken a clearer head than yours or mine to have decided with anything like certainty. But of this there is no doubt that the kettle and the cricket, at one and the same moment and by the same power of amalgamation best known to themselves, sent each his fireside song of comfort streaming into a ray of the candle that shone out through the window and a long way down the lane. And this light, bursting on a certain person, who, 
on the instant, approached towards it through the gloom, expressed the whole thing to him, literally in a twinkling, and cried, Welcome home, old fellow. Welcome home, my boy. This end attained, the kettle, being dead beat, boiled over, and was taken off the fire. Mrs. Peerybingle then went running to the door, where, what with the wheels of a cart, the tramp of a horse, the voice of a man, the tearing in and out of an excited dog, and the surprising and mysterious appearance of a baby, there was soon the very first what's-his-name-to-pay. Where the baby came from, or how Mrs. Peerybingle got hold of it in that flash of time, I don't know. But a live baby there was, in Mrs. Peerybingle's arms, and a pretty tolerable amount of pride she seemed to have in it, when she was drawn gently to the fire by a sturdy figure of a man, much taller and much older than herself, who had to stoop a long way down to kiss her. But she was worth the trouble. Six foot six with the lumbargo might have done it. Oh, goodness, John, said Mrs. P. What a state you're in with the weather. He was something the worse for it, undeniably. The thick mist hung in clots upon his eyelashes, like candied thaw, and between the fog and fire together, there were rainbows in his very whiskers. Why, you see, Dot, John made answer, slowly, as he unrolled a shawl from about his throat and warmed his hands. It, it ain't exactly summer weather, so no wonder. I wish you wouldn't call me Dot, John. I don't like it, said Mrs. Peerybingle, pouting in a way that clearly showed she did like it, very much. Why, what else are you? returned John looking down upon her with a smile, and giving her waist as light a squeeze as his huge hand and arm could give. A dot, and... Here he glanced at the baby. A dot, and carry. I won't say it, for fear I should spoil it, but I was very near a joke. I don't know as ever I was nearer. He was often near to something or other very clever, by his own account. This lumbering, slow, honest John. This John so heavy, but so light of spirit. So rough upon the surface, but so gentle at the core. So dull without so quick within, so stolid, but so good. Oh, Mother Nature, 
give thy children the true poetry of heart that hide itself in this poor carrier's breast. He was but a carrier, by the way, and we can bear to have them talking prose and leading lives of prose and bear to bless thee for their company. It was pleasant to see Dot with her little figure and her baby in her arms, a very doll of a baby, glancing with a coquettish thoughtfulness at the fire and inclining her delicate little head just enough on one side to let it rest in an odd, half-natural, half-affected, wholly nestling and agreeable manner on the great rugged figure of the carrier. It was pleasant to see him, with his tender awkwardness, endeavouring to adapt his rude support to her slight need, and make his burly middle age a leaning staff not inappropriate to her blooming youth. It was pleasant to observe how Tilly Slowboy, waiting in the background for the baby, took special cognizance, though in her earliest teens, of this grouping, and stood with her mouth and eyes wide open and her head thrust forward, taking it in as if it were air. Nor was it less agreeable to observe how John the carrier, reference being made by Dot to the aforesaid baby, checked his head when on the point of touching the infant, as if he thought he might crack it, and bending down, surveyed it from a safe distance, with a kind of puzzled pride such as an amiable mastiff might be supposed to show if he found himself one day the father of a young canary. Ain't he beautiful, John? Don't he look precious in his sleep? Yes, very precious, said John. Very much so. He generally is asleep, ain't he? Lord, John, good gracious, no. Oh, said John, pondering. I thought his eyes was generally shut. Hello. Goodness, John, how you startled one. It ain't right for him to turn him up in that way said the astonished carrier. Is it? See how he's winking with both of them at once. And look at his mouth. Why, he's gasping like a golden silver fish. You don't deserve to be a father, you don't, said Dot, with all the dignity of an experienced matron. But how you should know what little complaints children are troubled with, John. You wouldn't so much as know their names, you stupid fellow. And when she had turned the baby over on her left arm and had slapped its back as a restorative, 
she pinched her husband's ear, laughing. No, said John, pulling off his outer coat. It's very true, Dot. I don't know much about it. I only know that I've been fighting pretty stiffly with the wind today. It's been blowing northeast, straight into the cart, the whole way home. Poor old man, so it has, cried Mrs. Peerybingle, instantly becoming very active. Here, take the precious darling Tilly, while I make myself of some use. Bless it, I could smother it with kisses, I could. I then, good dog, I box a boy. Only let me make the tea first, John, and then I'll help you with the parcels, like a busy bee. Howled off a little, and all the rest of it, you know, John. Did you ever learn howled off a little when you went to school, John? Not to quite know it, John returned. I was very near it once, but I should only have spoiled it, I dare say. Ha ha, laughed Dot. She had the blithest little laugh you ever heard. What a dear old darling of a dunce you are, John, to be sure. Not at all disputing this position. John went out to see that the boy with the lantern, which had been dancing to and fro before the door and window, like a will-of-the-wisp, took due care of the horse, who was fatter than you would quite believe if I gave you his measure, and so old that his birthday was lost in the mists of antiquity. Boxer feeling that his attentions were due to the family in general and must be impartially distributed, dashed in and out with a bewildering inconsistency. Now, describing a circle of short barks round the horse where he was being rubbed down at the stable door, now feigning to make savage rushes at his mistress, and facetiously bringing himself to sudden stops. Now eliciting a shriek from Tilly Slowboy in the low nursing chair near the fire by the unexpected application of his moist nose to her countenance. Now exhibiting an obtrusive interest in the baby. Now going round and round upon the hearth and lying down as if he had established himself for the night. Now, getting up again, and taking that nothing of a fag end of a tail of his, out into the weather, as if he had just remembered an appointment, and was off, at a round trot, to keep it. There, there's the teapot, ready on the hob said Dot, as briskly busy as a child at play at keeping house. And there's the old knuckle of ham, and there's the butter, 
and there's the crusty loafer and all. Here's the clothes basket for the small parcels, John, if you've got any there. Where are you, John? Don't let the dear child fall under the grate, Tilly, whatever you do. It may be noted of Miss Slowboy, in spite of her rejecting the caution with some vivacity, that she had a rare and surprising talent for getting this baby into difficulties and had several times imperiled its short life, in a quiet way particular to her own. She was of a spare and straight shape, this young lady, insomuch that her garments appeared to be in constant danger of sliding off those sharp pegs, her shoulders, on which they were loosely hung. Her costume was remarkable for the partial development, on all possible occasions, of some flannel vestment of a singular structure, also for affording glimpses in the region of the back of a corset, of a pair of stays in colour a dead green. Being always in a state of gaping admiration at everything, and absorbed, besides, in the perpetual contemplation of her mistress's perfections and the baby's, Miss Slowboy, in her little errors of judgment, may be said to have done equal honour to her head and to her heart. And though these did less honour to the baby's head, which they were the occasional means of bringing into contact with deal doors, dresses, stair rails, bedposts, and other foreign substances. Still, they were the honest results of Tilly Slowboy's constant astonishment at finding herself so kindly treated and installed in such a comfortable home. For, the maternal and paternal slow boy were alike unknown to fame, and Tilly had been bred by public charity, a foundling, which word, though only differing from fondling by one vowel length, is very different in meaning and expresses quite another thing.